Welcome back to Bible Time, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would get glory today, Lord, that you would get honor and that your name would be lifted up, that your word would be exalted. You said you exalted your word above your name, Lord God, and we pray that you would do that again today and just lift high your word. Minister to us through the word. Feed us through the word. Help us today in Jesus' name. Our eyes are on you and our hope is in you in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake. Amen. Here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is going on um, with his accolades, with his praise to the church at Thessalonica, his his attaboys for some of you, or well done. How many of you like to get praised when you do a good job and you hear a good job? I've got a little toddler and whenever he is being potty trained and he goes to the bathroom and everybody claps and shouts hooray for him, he claps and shouts with everybody else. And really that is, it's silly whenever it's potty training, but people are people and people like praise. People thrive on praise. People, praise will do more for you than discipline. Now, if you think that you can raise children without discipline, then you think you're smarter than God. It's not going to work. But if you raise children without praise, you'll have a bunch of soldiers who might march lockstep with you as long as you're in their presence. But as soon as they get out out of your sight, they're going to do whatever they want. Children need praise. Adults need praise. People need praise. The greatest leaders in the history of the world were leaders that knew how to motivate their people. You go back to Hannibal who crossed the Alps to attack with elephants, no less, and he made the roads that they are still using thousands of years later in the Swiss Alps down there between Rome and Spain. As you go across, Hannibal came up from Carthage in North Africa He went across to Spain and then he went across the Alps, huge high snow covered mountains and his engineers cut and blasted roads for his soldiers to drag their carts across and he took war elephants through the snowy mountaintops to get them into Rome and he attacked Rome. He occupied Rome for 17 years with his own army that he paid for out of his own bank account. And he nearly crushed the Roman Empire before it ever existed. Hannibal's men loved Hannibal so much that they would do anything Hannibal asked him to ask them to do. And there have been other leaders throughout history who have so motivated their troops that they were able to accomplish unreasonable feats. George Washington in the United States of America was so loved by his soldiers that they would go anywhere with him because he would go anywhere with them. And he praised them. But did you know that George Washington was strict in his discipline and had deserters shot? Literally had deserters shot, yet his men loved him. Why? Because though he was strict and disciplinarian in the military, yet he praised his soldiers, he motivated his soldiers, and he encouraged his soldiers. And here God, through the Apostle Paul, is encouraging and praising and motivating his church to go forward. People need praise. People need motivation when they do what's right. It's a rare person that can go on all by themselves. That's why we have a song, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. It's a rare thing to find a Daniel, somebody that will show up in a a pagan king's court as a captive and thrive and and go for God his whole life without faltering and without wavering and almost always alone at the top with nobody there to support him in his convictions and his beliefs. Even up to his old age, Daniel had to stand alone. And we sing the song, Dare to be a Daniel. Why? Because they made that law that no one could pray to anybody but the king. And then Daniel defied that law, not because he was um, a rebel. He defied that law because it was unlawful and because God's ways are higher than man's ways and we ought to obey God rather than men. And Daniel was thrown in the lion's den for it and he never flinched. He never backed down. The scripture gives us no record of Daniel even worrying or fussing about it. Daniel went to that lion's den without encouragement. He went to the lion's den as far as we know without any praise and he had to go through that great trial. Most people fail in those circumstances. You're 
average people need praise and encouragement. By the way, the Bible calls God's people sheep. Sheep need praise and encouragement. Sheep need to be led, not driven. Wolves can be driven. Sheep must be led. Wolves will be driven, snapping and barking and and howling and, and trying to bite, but sheep do not drive. They do. It doesn't work. All they do is scatter when they get driven. But sheep must be led. And here in the Word of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul is giving these words of high praise to the church at Thessalonica. He'd already done that there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And you'll notice that 1 Thessalonians has much more of this praise from the Apostle Paul. He spends more time lavishing praise on them. Why is that? Because they are more praiseworthy in 1 Thessalonians than 2? Well, maybe that might be true, but it's also true that they were younger Christians. And the younger people are in the faith, the more immature people are, the more they need that strong encouragement for everything they do right. Hopefully, whenever you hit about four or five years of age, you no longer have to be clapped for when you go to the bathroom. You just do it. You just take yourself to the bathroom and go, and you don't have to have a certificate of honor given to you. Hopefully, by the time you're 10 or 12, you know how to take care of your own self, wipe your own rear, wash your own face, brush your own teeth. And so it is with Christians. As Christians mature in the faith, they come to a place where they're no longer looking for glory from men and they're looking glory for, um, for glory from God only. Jesus talked about how can you receive glory from God if you receive glory from men? And a lot of times I'm afraid we lose our reward because as we mature in Christ, we still want to be uh, clapped for. We still want everybody to shout good job every time we do something that's right. And so we end up losing our reward because we're constantly seeking glory of men and we won't even go through the trials and the difficulties that God wants to take us through to mature us in the faith. But here, this church at Thessalonica is a powerful church and there are examples to all them in Macedonia and Achaia because of how they went through persecution. Because of how they went through persecution. And in our text here in 2 Thessalonians 1, we find that the church at Thessalonica is still going through persecution. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Now, the a lot of times people will make the mistake of assuming that going through persecution means that you are a mature church. And people will make the mistake of thinking that because you know good doctrine, you are a mature church. Maturity has to do with learning to follow the master. Maturity has to do with learning to obey Christ. I was recently um, speaking with a pastor. He was talking about a young pastor that God has been um, really bringing up in the faith. The young pastor has just taken a church. God's been doing great things in his life. And as the pastor told me about this young pastor, I was I was thoroughly um, overjoyed to hear that the testimony of how frustrated some people have been with this pastor because he thinks that God's telling him to do stuff and he's obeying it even whenever people don't like it. And I could have just about jumped up and down and shouted hallelujah because maturity has much more to do with learning to obey God than it has to do with knowing all the right terminology for the right doctrines and having your systematic theology nailed down and your eschatology all hammered out. Maturity has much more to do with being able to follow God and stand alone and do what God tells you to do, even when it costs you, than it has to do with all these other things that we prize so highly. Doctrine is important. The scripture is given for doctrine. Eschatology is important. End times theology. That's what eschatology is. Understanding the book of Revelation. Understanding the book of Daniel. Understanding the prophecies of the Bible. Understanding what's going to come in the end times. The Bible has a clear pattern of end times events and you need to understand it. It's important. We're going to get into that in 2 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul is going to get into it um, in a, a, quite a bit here in 2 Thessalonians. He already got into it with the Thessalonican church in 1 Thessalonians. But as I pointed out back in 1 Thessalonians, this what we consider to be meat for mature Christians, prophecy conference, end times um, events, and getting these preachers to come in and tell us all the 
nitty gritty about what everything is in the book of Revelation. We think that's meat for mature Christians, but Paul was giving it as candy to baby Christians and who he was encouraging in the faith with it. And the reality is that our eschatology is not as important as our maturity of obedience to Christ and following Christ and standing alone for Christ and doing what Christ said to do. You'll notice that Jesus Christ picked fishermen. He picked a publican. He picked a tax collector to be his disciples. These men did not have much learning. They did not have much knowledge. It was offensive to the learned class. These men did not have great theology. These men did not have a good understanding of the Bible. They had a a rudimentary understanding of the Bible. But Jesus chose those men. Why? Because they would follow him. And if you doubt that, go read the Gospels again. He told one man, come and follow me. Go sell all that you have and come and follow me. That man went away sorrowful because he had much riches. He did not follow Jesus. He was rich. That means he was educated. In those days, if you were rich, you got educated. If you weren't rich, you didn't get educated. So here was a rich, educated man. That man came to Jesus and didn't it say he was a young ruler? a young ruler. So he was educated in government. He was educated in leadership. He had leadership skills. He was a leader in the nation. It was a theocracy. So that man was theologically erudite. That means he was theologically learned. And he came to Jesus and he said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what saith the scripture? And the man quoted Bible to Jesus. One of the few people that had a Bible scriptural discussion with Jesus Christ recorded in the scriptures back and forth with the scriptures with Jesus and yet that man went away sorrowful because he had much riches and the poor fishermen who didn't even maybe know how to read for themselves but were dependent on others to read for them those were the ones that said yes Lord and left their nets and followed Jesus maturity in the Christian faith has much more to do with being able to follow Jesus when it's tough and go through the hard times whenever everybody is thinks you're stupid, then it has to do with making everybody think you're smart. A mature Christian doesn't necessarily get all the phone calls to go and preach around at all the churches. A mature Christian might get put on the backside of the wilderness for 40 years to learn to herd sheep so that he can deliver his people. God does that kind of thing. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And here is this church that Paul is about to, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, give great insights into the end times theology. And this church is advanced and maturing because they are suffering tribulation and persecution. And he says here, I we glory so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Now that faith, we'll look at this glory here and then we'll look at that patience and faith. So this glory that he's talking about is not the respect of persons of James chapter 2, where he says, if you have respect of persons, ye commit sin. If they're coming to your assembly, a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and thou sayest unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor man, sit thou there under my footstool. He says, you have respect of persons, and ye commit sin. So this is not a respect of persons that Paul is talking about whenever he glories. This is not a glorying in men. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church at Corinth was a wealthy church. The church at Corinth was a um, doctrinally sound church in, a, in many ways. The church at Corinth had, had many spiritual gifts operating within the church. But he says to them, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Do you hear me today? He says there's envying and strifes and division. That means immaturity. Do you hear me today? He says, you're babes. He says, well, one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is apostles, but 
ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. So here you've got the big city church with the big budget and the big ministries and the big gifts and the big preachers, and they're all coming into the big church. And this big city church here has, they've got the big names coming. Here's Paul coming. Here's Apollos. And they they know enough about the Bible to have differences of opinions about favorite preachers. They know enough about how to deliver a sermon that they have, they've tasted enough sermons. I call some people sermon tasters. They go around and they just taste this sermon, taste that sermon, taste it. When one fits their liking, they, oh, I like that one. And they just kind of take it like a buffet table and they never grow in the Lord because they're so busy just tasting sermons that they never get in and eat the word of God. And it's a plague in this nation. And so here they've got this big church with the big preachers and they, and they're like, oh, I like that guy. I like this guy. And they've got all their opinions and they think they've got it all figured out. And now there's schisms, there's envyings, there's fightings, and the carnality has come into this big church. Now, Corinth was a church where God told Paul, fear not, Paul, I have much people in this city. And he says, hold not thy peace. And Paul preached there in the city. They tried to take him before the magistrate. The magistrate um, thrust them out from the courtroom, said, I'm not even going to listen to this. This is a religious discussion and I'm not for it. And you guys figure it out and sent them out. And the Jews were beaten by the people of the city in Corinth when they had tried to bring in Paul. So God gave Paul great liberty, great freedom. Sounds like America. Huh? Great liberty, great freedom in, in that place of Corinth. And so they had all their big preachers and they had all their big church building. They had all their big stuff, but they were carnal. There was all this infighting, all this back and forth, all this, all this envying, all this strife. Well, I like this preacher. Ah, that preacher's a fake. I don't like that preacher. I don't like that preacher. That church over there, that's a good church. But that church down there isn't a good church. And all this back and forth carnality. And that's glorying in men. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.21. We're going to contrast this thing and see what the true glory is that he's talking about. So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and Tribulations, the tribulations that ye endure. 1 Corinthians 3, 21. Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Let no man glory in men, whether, of, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. He's saying, you got to get back to the basics. You guys are so caught up in your little perfect theology. You're so caught up in your little perfect doctrine. And again, theology and doctrine are right. And there's some things you shouldn't move on. But they got carnal about it. And they got sticklers on the little things. And they're splitting hairs over stuff that doesn't matter. Now, they wouldn't do that if they didn't think it mattered, did it? I can remember when a preacher told me one day, he says, you know, sometimes God doesn't care as much about that as you do. Sometimes he does. I've heard that used both ways. Sometimes somebody's saying, you know, God doesn't care about that kind of stuff. We should all get along. And then they're using a perverted satanic Bible that blasphemes the name of Jesus and telling you you need to get over it. So I've heard it used for license, but there's a balance to this thing. I've also heard it used where it was accurate. People leave churches over little splitting hairs of things that God does not think are anywhere near as important as those people think. But when you're caught up in carnality, all you can see is your own point of view. Because it's all about me, me, me. And when it's all about me instead of all about Christ, I've got to be right. I've got to have my way. I've got to have talk time. I've got to be listened to. I've got to have my point made. I've got to be heard. It's all about me. And it splits churches. It splits fellowships. It breaks fellowship. This is carnality and walking as men and glorying in men. Whenever Paul says in first in 2 Thessalonians 1.4 that we glory in you. He's not talking about respected persons. He's not talking in glorying in men. There's another kind of glory he's talking about. Go to 2 Corinthians 10. We'll look at another one. It's not before we look at what it is. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 15. Not boasting of things without our measure that is of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. Paul's not talking about going in and notching his spiritual pistol. Amen. 
What do we mean by that? Well, sometimes the old gunfighters in the Wild West, in the American Wild West days, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, maybe even back into some of the early 1800s, they would carry their guns, and especially right there at that turn of the century, and they would carry their guns, and sometimes they would be known, they'd take a knife and make a notch in the handle of their gun every time they killed somebody. So a man with a bunch of notches in the handle of his gun was dangerous. And they'd make those notches so that you could see it. Well, that only lasted so long. And then all the greenhorns started coming in and notching their guns so that it would look like they killed a bunch of people too and then it defeated the purpose. But some Christians get this notch the pistol mentality. And they think that this is what it means to glory like Paul's talking about. Glory so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God. And they're like, well, how many souls did you win this day? Oh, I got seven. I got 17. I got 71. And they go around lording it over one another and cherry picking and trying to get in on other people's ministries to try and right there steal the glory and get in the limelight and make it look like they're the big boss. I remember a big move of God where I was at a meeting and the evangelist was up. God was using the evangelist. Some people don't like the evangelist God used, but God used him whether anybody likes him or not. And uh, whether I agree with everything he says or does that has nothing to do with it God used the man and that man he was being used to God there were all these pastors local pastors up on the stage and in walks this evangelist the guy the guy had a six foot piece of plywood on top of his sedan his car And that piece of plywood was painted with his name and number and the whole side of his car was his name and his number and he walked through the tent giving out flyers with his picture and his name and his number and he walked up on the stage and started passing out cards to all the pastors so that he would get callbacks and get chances to preach in their churches and tried to sit up there on the platform with all the other guys and he wasn't even from there. This is what we're talking about. This boasting of another man's line of things. I still pray for that man to this day that God would use him. I'm for him. I want God to use that guy, but he's not going to get anywhere with God doing it that way. God doesn't work that way. That's glorying of men. That's boasting in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. Cherry picking, glory stealing. In the um, video game world, a lot of kids out there playing their video games, they call it kill stealing. Right whenever you're ready to win, another guy swoops in and takes the victory so that he gets all the credit for it. That kind of stuff is carnal. And it happens all the time. And it kills the the working and the moving of the Spirit of God, this self-glory, this self-exaltation. Christ said, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted, and he that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he said it over and over and over again. If you exalt yourself, you'll be abased. If you exalt yourself, you'll be abased. If you exalt yourself, you'll be abased. So that's not the glory that it's talking about. Um, There in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 9, Moses tells Pharaoh, glory over me. Pharaoh had disobeyed God, disobeyed God, disobeyed God, and he was smarting off at God and Pharaoh and Moses caught that cocky attitude and he said, glory over me. When shall I beseech the Lord to remove this plague? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Glories over Moses. That's a whole nother type of glorying where you're lording it over people and acting like you're the big hot shot in control. That also is not this glory. So let's look at what this glory is. 2 Corinthians 11. And verse 18. Here Paul says, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. Now this year, a lot of people rub their hands together. What Bible school did you go to? Where did you go to school? What's your alma mater? What pastor did you sit under? How many people has he run out of church? How many people attend on Sundays? How much money's in the tithe? How many building programs have you got? How many kids come in your bus ministry? How many tracks do you pass out? They're rubbing their hands together. Let's count nickels and noses. Let's stack this thing up. Let's do our little peacock strut here and figure out who number one is. Paul says, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. They go, it's about time. I knew I knew we'd get him sooner or later. Now we can really compare ourselves amongst ourselves. The Bible says if you compare yourselves amongst yourselves, you're not wise. Paul here looks like he's about to bite the bait. He says, for ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. He's being facetious. 
Some people don't think pastors should ever be facetious. Well, you didn't read your Bible much. Verse 20, For ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smites you on the face. He says, you guys are so carnal. You're, you're playing this whole henpeck game. You're getting your whole tear game going on to try and exalt yourselves above each other. And he says, he says, you suffer fools gladly seeing yourselves are wise. You're so wise you can handle all this foolishness. He says, so I'll just have to join you all there. And he says, I speak as concerning reproach. Look at what he glories in here. I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolish, foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. He says, I'm being foolish. Are they the ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. Now look at where he goes with this thing. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths oft. How many times have you died, died preacher? How many times have you died and risen from the dead, preacher? He says, in deaths oft, in prisons frequent. How, how much how often do you brag about being in prison? Now, ironically, there is a whole subgroup of people amongst fundamentalist evangelical churches that glory in this, and they will purposefully try to get in trouble with the law so that they can pretend like they're like Paul, and that is so shockingly carnal that you have to wonder if they're even saved. You got like, what is going on? I'm not talking about those guys, right? We're moving on. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. And journeyings often in perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of mine own countrymen. Do you hear the bad things happening to him? He's got robbers coming after him. He's been shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day floating in the ocean hoping he would survive all night floating in the ocean, all day floating in the ocean. He's been in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils, that's dangers, among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that cometh, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not if I must needs glory. There's that glory again. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. Well, that's a different kind of measuring stick, isn't it? Except for those ascetics out there, of course, and they're in, that's insanity. Here's a different kind of glorying. And here in our text, 2 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. So this glorying that the Apostle Paul is glorying in this church at Thessalonica is that he is glorying that they are going through the fire and not burning up. He's glorying that they are having tough times, but they're still worshiping God. Now, wait a second. That's not church bulletin material. Praise God. We had 13 members thrown in jail last week during visitation. You just don't see many praise worship services around that, do you? But here the Apostle Paul is glorying that they are going through tribulation, they are going through persecution with patience and with faith. How different God's measuring stick is than ours. God says, my ways are not your ways. Now here this is, he's glorying. But not just him, it says, in the churches of God. In the churches, plural, of God. Now that's a very important phrase there. We're not going to camp on that, but we will stop by real quick. This establishes the fact of the local church. This affirms the equality of the local church. The churches of God are glorying with Paul, with the church of Thessalonica because of what they're going through. So while there is the body of Christ, which is made up of all the believers in Christ who have been born again by the power of God, and that's clear throughout the scripture, while there is that in the Bible, yet the local church is also just as strongly taught in the Bible. And here this alludes to the autonomy of the local church, that the Thessalonican church was considered separate and independent from the other churches of God. 
that these other churches of God gloried in what God was doing in the church of Thessalonica. And that also shows us that there's an encouragement of fellowship and mutual exchange of heartaches and blessings between churches. Now, loner churches don't make it. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the Lord being gracious to me has allowed me to see many, many churches. Um, There's others who've seen many more than I have seen. But in all the churches that I've seen, there's one thing that stands out. The loner guys who know everything and everybody else is wrong and they're right about everything and they can't get along with anybody, they don't make it. Their church will slowly dwindle away, especially when they hit old age. They might be able to hold it together while they're in their strength of their youth. But as they hit their old age and they lose their fire and they lose their strength and charisma, those that followed them just slowly drift away. And the next thing you know, they're in their 70s and they're all by themselves going to church alone, going to church with basically nobody. And they're the pastor of the church and they're there alone and they have no friends. And if you talk to them, they, everybody forsook them. Everybody forsook them. And they always blame it on suffering for righteousness sake. But it doesn't have to be that way most of the time. Sometimes it does. There's sometimes it does. So be careful just passing judgment when you see an old man trying to hold a church together by himself. Some of them have really, really, really suffered. But a lot of times it's self-inflicted. Loner churches don't make it. On the other side, denominational churches don't make it either. Oh, they might end with a lot of people and a full budget, but in the end they compromise. Who makes it? Suffering churches standing together in patience and faith make it. And that's the next part of the verse there, patience and faith. Patience here is linked to charity. In 1 Corinthians 13, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity suffereth long and is kind. And that means, guess what? You're going to put up with some people that don't see eye to eye with you on everything. And if you don't, you're going to be all alone at the top of your little mountain. You can build your own little mountain and stand on top of it and say, I'm king of the hill. And nobody even acknowledges that your mountain exists. And yeah, you can be king of your hill. You'll be there all by yourself. Charity suffereth long and is kind. That means whenever some Somebody shows up and they see something differently than you in the Bible. You give them Christian charity unless they're preaching heresy and teaching heresy. If they're drawing people away from the faith, we are to withstand them. And that's where the denominational group falls is they get tied in with their denomination and associations. And then they won't stand for the Bible when somebody leaves the Bible. Two ditches. There's always two ditches on either side of truth. Here's another ditch. Uh, A brother told me one day, he says, truth is always in the middle of everybody's opinion. So I just figure out what everybody thinks about everything. And then I know what truth is by looking at the middle opinion. Whatever's the most balanced opinion of everybody else's opinion is truth. (laughs) Gag. Gag a maggot. No, the Bible is the measure of truth. And everybody's opinion is not valid. If you take everybody's opinion, you are guaranteed to be wrong. Do you hear me? I don't know if I'm getting through to anybody. Do you hear me today? If you take everybody's opinion about a subject into consideration instead of going to the word of God and taking every verse that deals with anything remotely related to the subject, if you go to every man's opinion instead of to every bit of God's opinion and the whole counsel of God, you are guaranteed to be wrong. You have a 100% chance of being wrong in error. Anyway, (coughs) Romans 5. Let's look at this real quick. Patience and faith. We're going to look at how patience and faith tie together here in Romans chapter 5. Some of you probably were already thinking of that too. Romans chapter 5. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore being justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not again, what glory? 
the glory of God. And this is the key back there to our text because he's glorying in them, but he's glorying in God in them. And we'll see that as we study this here. They're they're rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Verse three, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. That means we glory in the bad times. We glory when things are not going good. We glory when there's not money for the building program. We glory when there's not money to fix the church bus. We glory whenever the bus driver is sick and nobody can go out on visitation because there's a city ordinance against us that's been cooked up by the city and all we can do is gather and pray and beseech God for help because we're being being attacked by local government, etc. We glory in tribulations. If these things are happening, we glory in them. Why? We glory in tribulation knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So the tribulations that come work patience. Nobody wants patience. By the way, um, usually more mature Christians, whenever they hear a young Christian say, I'm, oh God, please give me patience, they all cringe. Because they know that tribulation worketh patience. And the way God gives you patience is by bringing tribulations into your life to teach you patience. But this tribulation that worketh patience also worketh experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. What is hope? Hope is the result of faith. Faith is what starts this whole chain of events. Hope is the end of it. Hope is the well-founded, well-grounded, knowing that what God says he will do, God will do. So God does what God says he will do. And you learn that God will do what God says he will do by going through bad times, going through tribulations, going through things that don't work out right, and seeing that God still does what God says God will do, even when things aren't working out right. Even whenever you don't understand why it's happening this way, this works hope. Hope is is a fruit that comes out of faith. You start out believing God just because he said it. But then when you believe God just because he says it, the devil comes and attacks and brings tribulation. And he attacks you on what you believe God said. Maybe it's for a brand new Christian. Maybe it's just on the fact that God said he would save you if you believe. And so you say, okay, God, you said you'd save me if I believe. I believe. And and you're all happy and you have joy and peace. But then here comes the devil. And next thing you know, he's causing doubts and he's attacking the veracity of the word of God and trying to shake your faith in 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 the finished work of Christ. And now all of a sudden you have tribulation. But as you go through that tribulation with patience... Leaning on the word of God, which is faith in action. Faith is just trusting the veracity of the one speaking, believing God, taking him at his word. As you go through that tribulation patiently, suffering through that tribulation and that temptation from the devil, that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And now you've been through the battle. You've been to the other side and you know that God was faithful and your faith is in God's word has now gone beyond just a faith in what God said. It is now also a faith in the God that took you through the tribulation and gave you the power to do what God said to do and to trust God through that tribulation. So this church at Thessalonica had been going through this tribulation and the patience and the faith with, with, with which they were riding above the tribulation was the reason that the churches were glorying in this little church. It says, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Their patience and faith in the midst of persecutions and tribulations was causing the other churches to glory. They were saying, look at that little church. Look at that church. Look at the way they're holding on. Look at the way they won't be shaken. And now there is a fellowship of suffering that is being built. 
We build associations, we build um, church fellowships, we build all this kind of stuff. But did you know that God will build it automatically? If you love God and you suffer long and you stand for the word of God, you will meet Christians who believe what you believe and you will develop friendships with them and they with you and you will have joy and fellowship and glory in what God is doing in these other people. There in Romans chapter 5, he says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of of God. And here this is what happens. The church over here at Thessalonica is, is fighting through the tribulation and the church at Corinth, the churches in Achaia, in Achaia, the churches in Macedonia can see the battle and they can see the war and they're emboldened. Now, back in the, in the Civil War, they had soldiers would often consider themselves um, very blessed and fortunate if they got the worst job. There was such a spirit of manhood and bravery and courage, and courage was held up so high in this nation that if, if you wanted the, if, if you were a soldier, you wanted to take the worst spot where the most bullets were flying. That's not how we think today, but it's how they thought then. And when they had an impossible job to do, the more impossible the job was, the worse the odds were of getting out of it, the the more the soldier would glory in being asked to go to that battle. And I remember the, and some of you guys will hate me even bringing this up, at the Battle of Gettysburg, Pickett's Charge. You say, who was right, the north or the south? I'm not even going to give an answer on that right now. I'm not getting into that. I'm telling you about some soldiers right now. And both sides had soldiers. Old Pickett was down there and he had, I think it was 50,000 soldiers, but my memory fails me on the details. It's been a while since I've read it. And Pickett was commanded to charge Big Round Top. It was a big hill that the Union soldiers had taken and that hill was covered with artillery, with cannons. And it had trees all along the base of the hill and all through those trees, the Union soldiers had cut down branches, they dug trenches, and they built little fortifications and they were all trenched in behind the trees and there was a big field between Pickett and his soldiers and, and Big Round Top. It was a long field and it had two fences running through the middle of it that were going to stop his soldiers from being able to advance and General Robert E. Lee told Pickett to go right up the middle with his soldiers and attack Big Round Top. I've been there. I've stood at the battlefield of Gettysburg and I stood there and I, man, it was, it was amazing to think about. And I, was, I, would, I had studied carefully the whole battle before I went. And standing there, it was almost like I could see the soldiers starting out. Almost like I could hear the men shouting. And that day, Pickett argued with Robert E. Lee. He said, we'll all die. He says, there's no way we will take that center. They've got it trenched in. They've got cannons on little round top. They've got cannons on big round top. They're going to start hitting us with cannons right after we leave the trees. We're going to get hammered by artillery all the way across. They've already sighted their guns in for the fences where we are going to get stuck. And they know, and all they have to do is flip the cannon down to the little mark they made and pull the, and pull the firing hammer back and let it go. And they will kill us at the fences. And when we finally get over the fences, we'll get to those trees. And those soldiers are sitting there with all the bullets they can shoot behind, um, behind all kinds of earthworks. And we won't even be able to hit them. And they're going to kill us. Robert E. Lee says, you do it or I'll give somebody else the job. I'm not going to argue with you about whether or not he should have done it either. That's not the point. Pickett said, I'll I'll do it. He wasn't going to leave his men. His men loved him. Pickett was one of those soldiers that his men loved because he knew how to lead soldiers. He knew how to inspire soldiers. He knew how to encourage soldiers. And Pickett went out there that day in front of his men and he pulled his sword out and he said, charge. And he charged with his men and 50,000 men marched down that field that day. You say you sound like you're for the Confederates. I'm for human beings. Thank you very much. And I've told you I'm not getting into that. And you talk about these men. These were men. I don't care what color they were wearing on their uniform. I don't care what color their skin were. These men were men. And they were standing like men. And they were standing like brothers. And they marched across that field in rank. And as they marched, the cannons began firing. And those men began falling. And they got to the fences. And they got obliterated at the first fence. And they broke it down and went through it. And they kept getting hammered. And they got through the second 
pipe vents and they kept getting hammered and they got all the way up to the earthworks and they formed up ranks and they tried to fire and they fired a feeble volley because most of their men were already dead laying on the battlefield behind them. Thousands of men laying on that battlefield. I'm telling you, we don't even know what it means to suffer. We don't know what it means to be men in this country in this day anymore. And those men lined up and stood shoulder to shoulder and they loaded their rifles and they pointed them at an enemy they couldn't even see who was behind defenses and they fired their guns at the command of their commanding officer. And they reloaded standing there in the broad open while the Union soldiers decimated their ranks over and over again with volley after volley from behind earthworks. And they loaded their guns and they fired again. And if I remember right, at that point, Pickett finally called the, called the retreat. And his men turned to try and retreat orderly. And they didn't even run away like scared little chickens at that point. They backed up facing the enemy, loading their guns as they went and dying by the thousands I can't remember. It was less than 5,000 soldiers that made it back. More than 40,000 men lay dead on the battlefield. When those soldiers started retreating, the soldiers on the other side, the Union soldiers stopped firing their guns, even though they had not been ordered to stop firing. And they stood up on their earthworks and they waved their hats at their American brothers who were fighting against them and they shouted hurrah for those men because they respected them. Because they respected them for their courage and their bravery. Pickett survived. He was so grief-stricken over the death of his men that he never recovered because he was fighting a temporal battle. He was fighting a battle that does not have eternal reward. We're in a battle today. Church of Jesus Christ, we are in a battle today. We're in a battle against an unseen enemy. We're against a battle, we're in a battle against an enemy that has no respect for us. We're in a battle today. And instead of fighting each other and fussing each other, we need to get in the battle. You know why so many Christians fuss and fight? Because they're not in the battle. If you'll get your gun out, your spiritual gun, your Bible, and you'll get out in the streets and you'll get out there where the lost are and you'll start trying to bring souls to Christ and use the Bible to do it and not use a bunch of gimmicks and a bunch of tricks to try and trick them into church membership. If you'll go out there and get your Bible and try and win souls for Christ, it won't take you long to stop fussing with people. Trials and sufferings that are associated with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. These trials and sufferings that are associated will bring a deeper level of fellowship to your church than you can ever imagine. The churches that thrive, that hold to truth, do you know why they thrive? Because they go out and they fight for souls together. That's why they thrive. And if they don't do that, they don't thrive. Because it doesn't take long before they're fighting each other. But if they get out there in the battle together, there's a fellowship, there's a, there's a banding together that happens when you fight on the same side, when you go through a battle like that. I think of the landing on Normandy in World War II whenever the American forces and British and Canadian and other allied forces landed on the beaches of France. And I remember a friend of mine went out there to Europe with some of the veterans um, recently in the last 10 years or so, about 10 years ago, went out there to Europe and got to be on the beach of Normandy with survivors who had landed on those beaches when thousands of soldiers were cut down by Axis machine guns and shells. And those old men stood on that beach together and they might not have even known each other, but they stood there and they put their arms around each other and they hugged each other and they wept together because they had been through the fight together. They had been through the war together and they remembered their friends who had fallen and they remembered their buddies who had fallen. Now you might have seen them a week before Normandy and maybe one of them was in debt to the other one. Maybe they'd been gambling and drinking. Maybe they'd been in a fight. 
Maybe they knocked each other's teeth out. Maybe they couldn't stand each other. Maybe they were arguing with each other. But when the bullets started flying and they got out of those boats and men were getting shot and falling in the water, wounded and struggling and drowning around their feet while the bullets were splashing all around them and the mines were exploding and the shells were landing, they didn't care about their differences. They didn't care about who had lost the fight. They didn't care about all those things anymore. Now they were brothers and now they were in a battle. And it's time, church of Jesus Christ to get in the battle and lay down the little differences and the little schisms and the little problems that separate the church of Jesus Christ and pick up the sword of the spirit and take the shield of faith and put on the helmet of salvation and get in the battle. You say, what will bring unity to the church? We need unity in this church so we have ecumenical councils. So we get together and say, for true unity, what we need to do is just forsake truth and just everybody believe what you want to believe and agree to disagree. That's exactly opposite of biblical unity. Biblical unity is everybody get your Bible out, your sword of the spirit. Get your helmet of salvation, biblical salvation, born again by the power of God, not through church membership, baptism, or anything else that you want to make up. Get your loin skirt about with truth, not error. Get your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Get your breastplate of righteousness. That means holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You know what will break a church up is sin. Sin breaks up fellowship. Get the breastplate of righteousness and then get in the battle together and you'll have unity. You will have unity when you get suited up and armored up and get in the battle together. You'll suddenly stop looking at that person's little differences. You'll suddenly stop worrying about that man's opinion about something that's obscure and and that isn't really a big deal. And all of a sudden, you'll just want to put your arm around your brother. And when you see him take a hit and a fiery dart of the enemy sticks in him and it's burning and he's got blood pouring out of his wounds, you won't be over there kicking him while he's down because you've been fighting next to him. You'll be next to him covering him with your shield and praying for him and trying to lift him up. I'm telling you the answer to unity is to get in the word of God and get in the battle. Get your armor on and get in the battle. Stop fighting each other and start fighting the devil. The Bible tells us to have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at just a few things. We're going to get this thing wrapped up today. Ephesians chapter 2. You see a lot of people that think associational fellowship um, can can build unity just out of thin air, and it never happens. Just to be in an association doesn't mean you have unity or fellowship. And if you have associational fellowship with infidel churches that don't believe in salvation, they don't have truth, they have error, they don't have righteousness, they have sin, they don't have their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, but rather with um, church membership and fundraising drives, and they don't have the shield of faith, but rather they have apologetical arguments in order to bolster the intellectual ideas of their denomination, you're going to have a destroyed church whenever you fellowship with them closely. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. Struggling to turn my pages here. He says, Oh Lord, help me. I think I lost my spot. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 7 says, Be not therefore partakers with them with what? Go back to verse 2. He says, Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not once be named among you as become as saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. No fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. You say that you can have fellowship with those churches, then you're saying that your church is in darkness. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he says, Be not ye unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he tells that church, ye, ye is a plural word, by the way. You take the ye's and the thou's and the these out of your Bible and you take away information from God's word. That's why it's in there. Ye is plural, thee is singular. Ye are the temple. He's speaking to the church there that as a unified body gathered together in the name of Christ that their assembly is the temple. And he says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You're bringing defilement, if you do, into the temple. If you bring in these infidel doctrines, these heresies, these wicked errors that lead men astray in the lusts of the flesh, then you are unequally yoked and you're defiling the temple of God. God will not tolerate it. He will destroy your assembly. He will break it up. He will not allow it to continue. If it does continue in sin, it is not an assembly of God, but of the devil. We looked at a true church last time, and I encourage you to look that up. And yes, in the Second Thessalonians 1, chapter 3. Now he says in, um, here in the, in the Word of God in 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship, one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanseth us from all sin. What joy such fellowship is. What strength is gained when believers gather in true fellowship. And that true fellowship is gained in the light, walking in the light, as soldiers of the light. When we walk together, arm in arm, fighting against the enemy, doing battle against the devil, there is fellowship and there is love. And that is what overcomes all the differences. Because in case you haven't figured it out, nobody sees everything exactly the same. The Bible is true. But the the problem is everybody's wrong about something, but nobody knows what they're wrong about. If they knew they were wrong, your average person would try and fix that if they're any amount of sincere. I shouldn't say average person. The wicked people love their wickedness, and the Bible teaches that. But believers, true believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they knew they were wrong about something, they would change. Give them some slack. If you knew what you were wrong about, you would change, but you don't know. You think you're right about everything. No, I don't think I'm right about everything. Then tell me what you're wrong about. If you know what you're wrong about, why do you believe it? Amen? Amen. Now, this fellowship that is gained used to be in place in this nation. We had camp meetings, brush harbor meetings, where churches, even of other denominations, could gather together because we had one Lord, one faith, and by the way, one Bible. We all had the Word of God. Now, every denomination's made their own Bible, their own so-called Word of God, and they make their Bibles, they cut out certain things, they add in other things to emphasize their own doctrine, their own doctrines, which are based upon upon their own immorality and lack of morality. They say your theology is determined by your morality. It's usually determined by your immorality. When you start to sin, it changes your ability to see the Bible. And you automatically, through the wickedness of your deceitful heart, adjust the Bible to your own destruction. You rest it and change it to your own destruction. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11. We're almost done here. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11. Here Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The Bible tells you, beware when all men speak well of you. You're going to get hit if you're in the war. Beware when all men speak well of you. In verse 11, he says, Blessed are you, and men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Old veterans who go through the same battle together and they know what it's like to get hit by the enemy and they know what it's like to see how impossible it is to make it, they get humbled by the battle. 
There's nothing more humbling than being a powerless foot soldier on a massive field of battle with guns going off everywhere and bullets flying around your head and the ground shaking and erupting at your feet with explosions, landmines buried in the dirt, barbed wire, men screaming, men shouting, men dying all around you, blood flowing, your best friend who you know is faster and smarter than you gets shot in the head and dies in your arms, all of a sudden you don't think you're such a hot shot anymore. All of a sudden, you don't think you're Mr. Big Soldier Man who can win the whole battle by himself. And all of a sudden, you realize you need other people. You like other people. And it's not such a big deal if they don't brush their teeth in the morning. You're willing to put up with some differences just to have somebody still alive on your side. And this is what I'm trying to tell you today. If we will get in the battle, if we will get in the suffering and the tribulations of carrying the cross of Christ into the battle, we will be able to lay aside these little differences that are causing schisms throughout our army. What we have in the church of Jesus Christ today amongst evangelical fundamental Bible believing churches is that when somebody gets off a quarter of an inch on something that I think is right, then I have a God-given responsibility to take my sword of the Spirit, take my shield of faith, and beat him with it, and cut him down with the sword of the Spirit, and show everybody else his error, and that is satanic, and it has destroyed our churches and our unity and our effectiveness for Christ across the nation. (coughs) I remember as a boy going up to New York we would have a street blitz and we'd go out to Rochester, Buffalo, Niagara Falls and 350 people from all over the country would gather together and pass out tracts and and evangelize on the streets. There'd be street preaching, street witnessing, everything everything we could do to get the gospel out to people. And we'd all get back to the church there um, up in upstate New York, Old Paths Bible Baptist Church. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not, never will be by God's grace. And we get back there to that church, and you know what would happen? There'd be preachers there that didn't see eye to eye on dispensations. There'd be preachers there that didn't see eye to eye on all kinds of different aspects about the Bible. But they were preachers who believed in the blood of Jesus Christ. They were preachers who believed in one way to God through Jesus Christ. They were preachers who, who some of them believed in being filled with the Spirit, and other ones thought you got what you got when you got it, and you get a, got to get there on what you got. But you know what? When they got in the fight together, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, fighting against the enemy. We had unity and we had worship. And when we'd get back to that church house, I'm telling you, you'd never seen such a fuss. You think the Pentecostals put on a ruckus. You ain't seen nothing till you get around a bunch of Baptist soul winners who've been out there fighting for Christ on the streets together. And there'd be whooping and there'd be hollering and there'd be shouting and there'd be running. And then you'd look over there and there's somebody sitting there with their hands folded and tears running down their face. But they didn't care if the their neighbor was running laps. They were worshiping God quietly with tears while their neighbor worshiped God running laps with a flag. With a flag, you say, with a flag. Unity comes from getting in the fight together. And with that comes glory. When the saints gather together around the cross of Christ and enjoy one another's fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, it's glory. And it's glory not for me. It's glory not for the pastor. It's glory not for the evangelist. It's glory to Christ. And the whole group is unified, glorifying Christ for his gospel and for the glorious war that he's waging against the devil. Hallelujah. Bless God. And the shouts of glory go up and the praises fill the sky. Get in the fight. The glory is in the fight, Christian. You say, where's the glory in the churches of America? Ichabod, the glory's departed. Why? The fight departed. The true biblical fight departed. We're fighting each other. We're fighting for denominational schisms. We're fighting for notoriety. We're fighting for notches in our pistols, but we're not fighting for Christ anymore. When we, when we get back to fighting for Christ, when we get back to preaching the gospel and attacking the kingdom of Satan with the cross of Jesus Christ as our banner, we will have unity and there will be glory. You want to have glory back in your church. Get right with God. Get out on the streets call sinners to come to jesus get in the fight the glory will be there amen remember paul's glory 
in his tribulations and his sufferings, only battle-hardened soldiers can truly enjoy the glory of the victory. I don't want to get to heaven and be sitting there watching everybody shout praises to God and sit there and cry my eyes out because I wasted my life sitting on the sidelines watching football games and eating popcorn while souls went to hell. I want to be in the fight. And I want to stand arm to arm in arm and shoulder to shoulder with Paul and Timothy and Matthew and Mark and Luke and the other men of God who've gone before and fought the good fight. Boy, we've skipped some good scriptures. I wanted to get into there about fighting the good fight. We don't have time. We're shutting down. There's that about running the race. There's glory in finishing the race. There's no glory in being a spectator and sitting on the sidelines and you'll get sour and you'll start fussing because you want this runner to win and that runner to win. You know what the answer is? Stop being a spectator. Get your little number name tag pinned on your shirt and get out there in the race and run it yourself. It'll change your perspective. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would use this call to arms to the church, Father, that we lay aside our insignificant differences, Father, that you call insignificant, that you'd expose those differences we think are important, Lord, that we are causing schisms in the church over that you don't think are important. We're offending you with those, and we need your help. We pray that your Holy Spirit would put his finger right on them and shut our mouths. And shut us up and sit us down when we stand up and start running our mouths against a brother in Christ, Lord. And I'm asking this for me. And I'm asking it for our churches across this land. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd send the, put the fight back in your church. And that you'd send the glory back to your church. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And for Christ's sake, amen.